This morning's scripture is from Acts chapter 16, verse 11, and then verses 16 through 34. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. Dropping down to verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into the house, into his house, and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we welcome you this morning uh, to our worship service. You can tell, perhaps you can tell we're having some considerable mic problems and uh, sound system problems. There's a lot of ring I hear yeah, going on up there right now. Um, so we'll play this by ear, so to speak. If... Uh, if the ring continues, I'll probably just ditch the mic and shout because I can do that. Um, but uh, if it sounds like I'm just sort of rambling on here to try to hear this, if it sounds like it's going to be okay, what do you think out there? Is it too annoying? Too annoying? Yes. Very annoying. Good. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs up, leave the mic on. Thumbs down. Thumbs up one. Okay, we'll leave the mic on. The first sermon I ever preached 
came from this text, Acts chapter 16. I happened to be three years old when I preached it. (laughs) Honestly, that really happened. So my family tells me, um, I memorized this text probably because my mother helped me memorize it. And uh, I used to uh, stand up behind a little stool and I would beat on the stool and I would jump around and I'd wave this little New Testament. Remember those little Gideon New Testaments? She said, wave that thing around and shout and scream and stomp. And that was the text. (laughs) So 50 years later, here we are again. Um, I'm not going to shout and scream and stomp and spit like the revival time preachers I knew in the early 60s in the South. But I had it on good authority. That's the way you were supposed to preach back then. Today, I'd just like to address the text with you because it's a marvelous text. And honestly, it is one of the great turning points in the history of the church and in this narrative that we call the Acts of the Apostles. You may remember last week we were in chapter 15, and in chapter 15, the apostles were called together for a council about a particular matter concerning the Gentiles. And they gave directions concerning how to serve the Gentiles in the opening of the gospel to Asia Minor and other places. And from there, Paul left Jerusalem and started his second missionary journey. This missionary journey took him into what is often called Asia Minor, not exactly what we call Asia today. But in particular, in this passage, Paul finds himself in the city of Philippi. There's lots of things that are interesting and important about the city of Philippi. But one thing that's interesting, they wouldn't have seen it this way, but we do in retrospect. One of the things that's interesting is this is the first time the gospel reaches the European continent. Of course, nobody considered it the European continent at that time. But now in retrospect, we see it that way. So Paul's in Philippi, and as he enters Philippi, Luke gives a description of the city. It might not be an elaborate description, but it's more elaborate than he gives to some other cities in the book of Acts. The city of Philippi was a place that was named after Philip, who was the king of Macedonia in the 4th century B.C. Following that period of time in the 4th century B.C., the Romans conquered the known world, as you know, and in the 1st century B.C., Philippi was established as a Roman colony. As Luke says, a leading city in the area. In other words, it was a city of great repute. It was a city that you might call, and some had called, Little Rome. The structure of the city, the way the city was built, and everything related to the legal matters of the town were like a model of Rome in Italy. So Paul enters this very important city. Some even suggest, uh, based on the way Luke describes it, it might be his hometown. No matter, as Paul did in most every city that he entered, the first thing he would do was he would seek out a synagogue so that he he could begin to discuss with the Jews this notion of Jesus, the Messiah. There's only one problem. There's no synagogue in Philippi. We wonder why there's no synagogue in Philippi, and it's probably pretty likely is that there was not a quorum to establish one. A quorum to establish a synagogue in any part of the world 
would be 10 men. And then the synagogue could be established. So there were apparently not 10 believing Jews who could establish a synagogue who were male. Instead of a synagogue, Paul finds something else. He finds a group of women, and this precedes your reading. By the way, if I had um, wanted to do, had done what I wanted to do, I would have had us read all of chapter 16, but that would have been 40 verses. So I decided to edit it a little bit. One of the edits I did referred to Paul's first endeavor as a missionary in Philippi. He looked for a synagogue and found none, apparently. And he found a group of women who were meeting by a river about a mile outside the city. They met there to pray and to worship together because there wasn't a synagogue. Now, one of the leading women, not only of the town, but of the group, her name was Lydia. And she was a seller. Let's call her a businesswoman in today's term of purple clothing. Selling purple clothing was not a small thing. It was a lucrative business. It was the upper middle class, if not higher. Apparently, she was a rather wealthy woman. She also was Gentile. However, she had come to believe in God, the God of the Jews, and was worshiping with people in much the same manner that a woman who was Jewish would have worshiped. And she was with these women at the river. And they would pray together and they would have a worship service. So Paul and Silas go to this location at the river. Imagine yourself leaving the city, walking a mile away to a river and finding a group of women just down by the riverbed having a worship service. Seems a little interesting to us, but probably not so out of the ordinary in a lot of cultures. At this river, the women worship and Paul encountered Lydia. Now, Lydia is the first character in this story. Not read in our text, but an important part of this story. Lydia, a prominent member of the community, listened to Paul's words concerning Jesus, and the text says she believed. She thought to herself, I've been searching for God, and the story you're telling me about Jesus, it's absolutely compelling. And she believed. Don't you like the succinctness of the story? She believed. She believed and then she said to Paul a very interesting statement. She said to Paul, I believe. And if you believe that I'm serious about my belief, I want you to come and stay in my house. Now that's significant in itself. Most people wouldn't have a house large enough for anyone else to stay in. But she apparently had a large house and hosted four of the missionaries who were there, according to the historical records. Come, stay at my house and be with me. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come stay at my house. And she persuaded them. So Paul basically sets up shop in Lydia's house. We can infer from that, that was the beginning of the Christian community in Philippi. Because routinely, Christian communities in the ancient world were established in a home. So here we are, Lydia, Paul, and the other members of the team. Paul continues to do what he always did. He's out in the city proclaiming Jesus and trying to talk to people. You'll find in 
chapter 17, which we've already covered, but would come next week. Paul moves from that to Thessalonica and Athens, and he's in the marketplace there. The marketplace of ideas was a great place for Paul to talk. So he is talking in the marketplace, and the second character in the story enters. A slave girl who also is a fortune teller walks behind Paul and Silas day after day, screaming out in a very shrill voice that's not really her own. These are servants of the Most High God. Listen to them. Now, it's interesting that Paul doesn't deny what she says. He did believe himself to be a servant of the Most High God. That ascription, a servant of the Most High God, could have referred to Zeus or it could have referred to Yahweh. It was a common phrase. But this woman declares these are servants of the Most High God, and Paul agrees. But after a while, it just gets really annoying. That's the human description of what happened. Paul's just thoroughly annoyed. Another description of what happened, though not in the text, is probably something like this. Paul thought, this woman has a reputation for being a fortune teller that was related to the god Apollos at the temple Delphi. And that kind of, shall we say, endorsement might not go over so well. I'm not sure I like that endorsement. And furthermore, Paul thought to himself, this woman is possessed. She's not speaking on her own. This woman is oppressed because she's a slave girl. So for that reason, at some point, Paul, either because of irritation or thinking this through, turns to her and says, we're not going to have this anymore. In effect, out of her, you demon. Paul releases her from the spirit that oppresses her, and she begins to follow him as a well woman. That's character number two. First was Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman. Second character was a slave girl who had no rights of her own. You know what happens after that? You heard it in the text. Her slave owners are outraged. Their profit is gone. It was all about making money. Again, she was not her own. She was a slave. And now they lost their money. So they come up with a scheme to put Paul and Silas away. They are not overt about what they declare concerning Paul and Silas. They don't say we've lost a lot of money because these people have thrown a demon out of our slave girl. They say publicly in the square, they drag them into the square, and they say publicly, these men are Jews who are stirring up trouble and bringing in outside religion to the Roman Empire. And you know that's a bad thing to do. It destroys civil order, and the magistrates, you ought to take care of them. Now, Paul and Silas were accused by the slave owners, but as the text describes, the crowd got all riled up about it too. So you can see there was this mob mentality all around Paul and Silas screaming at the magistrates and the magistrates finally say, okay, does it remind you of anything? Reminds me a little bit of the trial of Jesus. The magistrates say, okay, we're going to solve this problem. We'll have them beaten and thrown into prison. So they call on the beaters. Actually, they weren't named that, but they really were that. There were people who would walk around a Roman town, and instead of wearing billy clubs, they would actually wear these whips. And uh, with those whips, they pulled Paul and Silas into the square, stripped them of their clothing to make it as painful as possible, and beat them on their backs. 
Paul tells us this happened to him three times, but apparently this was the first one. So bloodied, beaten, and bruised, they're thrown into prison. And if that's not enough, they're not just thrown into prison, they're placed in stocks, which basically means you're sitting upright with your legs out in brackets. According to historians, one of the things they frequently would do in stocks is the stocks were able to rotate outward to put more pressure on the legs and the hips to create more pain. Hands and feet in stocks, backs bloodied and aching all over. Paul and Silas are in jail. Oh, that's where the third character comes in. It's the jailer. It's not as though the jailer decided to put them in jail. He received them. He had the unfortunate or fortunate occasion to have Paul and Silas in his jail. And as the text continues, you know the story. While the night moved along, Paul and Silas, probably quite in contrast to other prisoners who had entered this prison in the past, who would have been engaged, no doubt, in cursing and screaming out in pain, Paul and Silas decided to pray out loud and sing hymns. Wouldn't you like to have known what the hymns were? Man, if you knew that, you'd be singing them every Sunday, right? <laughs> we don't know what they were. We, we think they might have been some psalms. But wouldn't it be interesting if they were singing the hymn that we just read in Philippians? Some say that was a hymn of the early church. I don't know what they were singing. But they were praying, giving praise to God, and singing with backs lacerated and in extreme pain. So for those of you who know hymnody, it would be like getting beat up, thrown in jail, and singing, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's the sentiment in the jail. And as Paul and Silas sing these hymns, an earthquake takes place. And it seems to be quite a good earthquake on their behalf because it doesn't just shake the prison walls, it shakes loose all their stocks and they're absolutely free. And the jailer runs to the jail. Jailers, by the way, in the first century were probably retired Roman soldiers and they knew the routine. Lose your prisoner, lose your life. So the jailer runs to the jail. And imagine the jail. We're not talking about a normal jail that we think of today. We're talking about a pit that has no light. It's essentially a cave. The jailer runs to the entrance of the jail. Pitch black. Grabs his sword and is about ready to kill himself. And out of the darkness, he hears this voice. Stop, don't do it. We're all here. And the text says he calls for a light. In other words, the voice comes out of the darkness. He can't see anything. Bring me a light. I got to see this. He gets a light and it's shown in the prison. And sure enough, all the prisoners are there. At that point, he's absolutely overwhelmed. And he falls down before Paul and Silas and says, Sirs, 
What must I do to be saved? What an interesting story. You even have to wonder what they meant. What must I do to be saved? Uh, Salvation was a popular topic back then. Salvation came from a number of places. It's possible the statement just meant, I want to be saved. I don't know what kind of salvation you're going to bring, but I think if you brought an earthquake, I can probably count on you. You got more ability to save than I do. Maybe, just maybe, he'd already heard of the Apostle Paul. Maybe he'd seen him in the city square. Maybe he'd heard the gospel message. We don't know. He just shouts, what must I do to be saved? And Paul, in the most exact and simple terms, just says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved in your whole house. Just believe. And the man believes and he and his whole house are baptized. It would be fascinating if that was the end of the story, but there's another portion to it. Again, that we did not read. Paul and Silas get the news the next morning that the magistrates have heard about the hollow and they decide we better release these prisoners. So they send the order to the jailer, let the men out. Paul and Silas can go on their way. And Paul says... I have a message for the magistrates. You can send it back to them. Not so fast. What do you mean not so fast, Paul? Well, I'll tell you why not so fast. I happen to be a Roman citizen, as does apparently Silas, according to him. And Roman citizens are not supposed to be beaten publicly without a trial. And that's exactly what you did to us yesterday. We're not just going to leave quietly. I know the law and you have to abide by it. Isn't that interesting? The magistrates are deeply alarmed and they escort Paul and Silas out of the city. Now you might ask yourself, well, if Paul was a Roman citizen, why did he allow himself to be beat? That's an interesting question. Maybe he just let it go on. Or maybe, I think this is probably more likely, All a Roman citizen had to do, if he was a Roman citizen, was to shout out before a punishment, I'm a Roman citizen. That's all it took. And they stopped it until they could confirm and then have a trial. It may be that in midst of this mob violence, Paul actually does shout it out, but nobody listens. Or it may be that Paul said nothing and went figuratively like a lamb to the slaughter. But when it's all over, he calls them out. And they take them out by escort. Great story, huh? You can see why I preached it when I was three. (laughs) Doesn't get much better than that. But what about it? Um, What do you see in it? I guess I can't do this... um, But some Sunday I'd like to. I I know I can't. There's too many people all together. But when I ask that question, I wish I could let everybody respond. What do you see in the story? You might say one thing. Certainly you might say another. 
There's so many things in the story, right? But let me begin with, with one and then go on to a couple more. The first thing I see in the story is the improbable establishment of a new church. What I mean by that is Paul did intend to establish churches everywhere he went. That wasn't the improbability. The improbable establishment of this church was the people who started the church. The people who were the bedrock for the church itself. They were a Gentile woman, a slave girl with no rights, and a Roman jailer. That's the beginning of the church in Philippi. Can you imagine three people who have less in common with one another than those three? The Roman jailer, a soldier who has oppressed the Jews and kept them down, a slave girl who has no rights at all, and a woman who has lots of money and is a Gentile? From this point on, in effect, you see this reproduced over and over again. People from disparate backgrounds coming together to establish the church of Jesus Christ because the church of Jesus Christ is internationally diverse and socially diverse and economically diverse and racially diverse. It's people who otherwise would not have sat down at table with one another who now call the other brother or sister. Isn't that interesting what the church does? The second thing I notice um, in this story is that the church, not just this one, but routinely, the church is birthed out of suffering. Birthed out of suffering. It actually started with Jesus, the suffering servant. We're in a chat, in fact, that the, the church was birthed. I, I have a question for you. Why should we be surprised when suffering is our lot as the church of Jesus Christ? Um, this is a critique, no doubt, but you know I'm good for that. I think that in our 21st century version of our world, We just think that shouldn't happen. And we're incensed if suffering is a part of our lives and a part of the life of the church. And there's some sense in which that should be the case. We should be against injustice. But on the other hand, moving from being against injustice to this particular persuasion, which is it's our right not to be persecuted. Persecution kills us. It kills the church. Persecution is a bad thing. I don't want to be persecuted, my friends. But what I know is that the church has always been established and always flourished in the midst of persecution. And if that's true, it ought to at least modify our attitude about it. When the church is persecuted, we at least ought to say, I wish it were not so, but God is at work. I wonder if that translates to our individual lives as well. Some of you may have heard this story before. Um, One of our missionaries, David Mensah, in Ghana, Africa, um, 
has a brother named Joseph. And when Joseph and David were young boys, uh, Joseph had a condition called sickle cell, sickle cell anemia, in which he would go, of course, into fits of incredible pain and would scream day and night. And their uncle, who had adopted them, because that was the only way for the boys to stay alive since their father had had died. Their uncle had no time for Joseph's screams. And David told me this story. He said, I remember as a young boy watching um, my uncle take my brother who was gnarled up like this in incredible pain and hang him from a tree, arms stretched out, while he screamed in incredible pain. As a form of punishment, shut up, kid. We don't want to hear you. His uncle was a very hard man, beat the boys continually. Many years later, David came to faith in Christ. And, of course, those of you who know David know his incredible story of bringing clean water to his villages and planting over 35 churches and teaching his people how to be self-sustaining and rotate crops. And the entire region where he is has gone through an economic revival and a spiritual revival because of his dedication David had grave difficulty in forgiving his uncle. But his uncle finally came to faith in Christ late in his years before he passed away. And you know what happened? His uncle would go to sleep. And then he would be awakened by a dream. And he would call Joseph, the little boy, that he hung in a tree. And he would say to Joseph, Joseph, quick, write these words down. These words to a song, they just came to me. And Joseph would write the words down. I've done uh, seminars for the pastors um, in that region. And they don't sing our songs. I'm glad to tell you that. I'm annoyed when I travel in third world countries and they're saying, singing the same songs we do. I want to hear something else. They don't sing any of our songs. They sing their own songs. They're the songs that were written by this uncle who nearly killed his nephews. Is that an amazing testimony to the grace of God? This wicked man, by his own account has been given the grace of Jesus Christ. And I stood with all those people singing those songs day after day after day. The man's gone, but the songs live on. And it was birthed in persecution. God does amazing things um, in persecution. Especially when we refuse to be embittered by it as David refused to be embittered by 
the persecution of his uncle and led him to the Lord. It's an amazing thing. The testimony of those who suffer is powerful. Can you imagine what kind of testimony it was that night when Paul and Silas, instead of cursing, sang praises to their Lord? The other prisoners heard. Paul, later on, perhaps um, reflecting a bit later in his life about the goodness of God, wrote some words about suffering. It wasn't about being beat up, that kind of suffering. It wasn't about that kind of persecution. But he had a perspective on suffering that perhaps came from the persecution. And here were his words. He had talked about the wonderful things he'd experienced by the grace of God. And then he said in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning with verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a perspective. It's a perspective that um, can change your life. Maybe it's not over persecution that you're going through. Maybe it's just general suffering. Maybe it's bad breaks in life. Any number of infirmities, let's call them. And the easiest thing to do, the most natural thing to do, is to complain about them. And then step number two is to be angry with God who would allow them. Because after all, he's sovereign, isn't he? He heals, doesn't he? But he doesn't for me right now. So in the midst of that suffering, Paul's admonition is unequivocally clear. Rejoice anyway. You know that he wrote an epistle to this church where he suffered. And near the end of the epistle in chapter 4, he gave them some suggestions about how to live under all circumstances, including suffering. And these were his words. To the people who knew him well and could receive it because it came from him, I'm convinced. He said, rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to all people, for the Lord is near. Rejoice all the time, in every circumstance, he says later. Rejoice because the Lord is near. How do you rejoice because the Lord is near? 
You do it, says Paul, with prayers and petitions and thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And when you do that, Paul says, I have a promise for you. When you do that, the peace of God, which transcends or overarches all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind. You want to know how to live, Paul says, rejoice. When? Always. How? In prayer and petition and thanksgiving. Make your request known to God. And why should I do this, Paul? Because the Lord is near. He's near you when your feet are in the stocks and bonds and your back is bloodied. He's near you when you have a thorn in the flesh. He's near you when you're up. He's near you when you're down. So rejoice always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. He didn't put it this way, but he might have. Keep rejoicing because the other prisoners are listening. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, for giving us your redemption and peace through Jesus Christ. We thank you for allowing us a new perspective on life. One that really is, um, by standards outside of faith, unrealistic and even foolish. But a perspective that by faith is real. A perspective that's eternal, that stands above time and space and, and believes that somehow in the midst of all the circumstances of life, you're working out those things for our good and that you're shaping us and conforming us to your image. So Lord, based on that, and only based on that, we can say it's good for us to rejoice in all circumstances, including our sufferings. I pray in particular, Lord, for those um, here this morning who are going through significant suffering, either because of just general life displacement or because of economic hardship or because of pain in the body or because of disease that threatens to take their life or because, Lord, they're just following you, and though they're not in jail, they're being ridiculed and persecuted for it. We pray, Lord, for all those people under all those circumstances and more which I have not even mentioned, you will allow them to rejoice always. That you will allow them through prayer and petition with thanksgiving to present their request to you and that you will do what you promised, Lord that the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard their hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.